It's not brain science. It's rocket surgery. This is Ready Player One. <laughs> the Incomparable, number 580, September 2021. Welcome back to The Incomparable. It's the summer of Spielberg. We've gotten to the bad part now, friends, because we're going to be talking about Ready Player One. You're saying to yourself, was that a Spielberg movie? It was, friends, from 2018, based on the 2011 novel by Ernest Cline. It is Ready Player One, uh, a movie that takes place in a virtual reality world, but also in the real world. Uh, mm, and like I said, it's rocket surgery. I, I, this is a bad movie, folks. Uh, joining joining me to uh, get the, the sticks out and, and beat at the pinata are the following wonderful people. Erica Ensign, Ready Player One. Uh, yeah, I I wasn't even supposed to be here today, but I just mistakes resist. were made. You watched the movie. <laughs> I did, and then I didn't want it to be for nothing. So here I am. <laughs> Annette Weirstra, Ready Player Two. Hello. Uh, yeah, like uh, two weeks ago, I had no idea this movie existed, and so thank you. Mm, mm, you're oh, welcome, thing. Moises Chuyan, Ready Player Three. Hey, quick quiz, Jason Snow, <laughs> favorite TV show. Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Yeah, okay. What's his favorite movie? What's his 11th favorite horror What's movie? What's his 11th favorite horror movie? <laughs> That's what I really want to know. Uh, Brian Hamilton, ready to play four? Oh, come on, Moises. You think you're a real Snell scholar? His favorite beverage? Tea. His favorite podcast? Flophouse. Come on. <laughs> and Chip Sutter, uh, Warrior Needs Food Badly. Ready player five? <laughs> uh, I had to watch it through my fingers. Mm. Oh, that sounds better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does improvement your fingers also from the 80s anyway <gasps> what uh, important part of of pop culture of the 80s the fingers so ready player one oh i don't even know where to start with this i i have some i have some big thoughts about it but i feel like maybe maybe i should just tell you what happens in ready player one and then we can all just kind of like watch it unfold does that sound okay to people like well jason the first fifth of the movie is voiceover narration <laughs> <laughs> I, I know many years ago, uh, y- y'all talked about the book. Do we need to talk about how it got from there to here? Uh, there's an incomparable episode about the book Ready Player One. And my my memories, it's a long time ago now. My memories about it were that we all generally agreed that is just shamelessly pandering to people who lived through the 80s. And that your feelings about it were perhaps influenced by if you were the person being pandered to as a male person from the 80s. I was a teenager in the 80s. He was writing his book to pander to me. And uh, I think Monty said at the time, it's pandering to me. (laughs) And therefore, I appreciate the pandering. Right. (laughs) But uh, and this movie, similarly, because it's based on that source material, this movie elevates this same idea, which is it is a. It is a a a you're swimming in eighties pop culture and it is references a plenty to nineteen eighties and some other things, but nineteen eighties in large part pop culture of various kinds. And and the book is very much a spot the reference, oh it's hilarious, they're doing this thing, now they're doing this thing. I don't know, I having not revisited the book, I don't know if the movie is actually more of a letdown. Uh or if it's just seeing them spend millions of dollars to make those references, it just feels more unseemly, but it feels less like I had fun discovering what next, what the references he was going to make in the book. And here, every reference that gets made just made me sigh like, yeah, OK, that's a reference. Yeah, I think I liked the book because I could 
read it in private and feel like, oh, this book is written for me. Very nice. <laughs> Not be ashamed. <laughs> Watching the movie, I appreciated the pandering. However, uh, it was so much more embarrassing to me that I was enjoying the movie because of how cringy the movie is in so many other respects mm. that it made me really rethink a lot of my life decisions to the point where uh, I enjoyed a little bit of the movie. So I, I have a lot to contend with in therapy this week. Same, same. <laughs> Fan service, the motion picture. I remember going back to the book and enjoying it at the time and having watched this movie i am now judging myself for having enjoyed the book i also enjoyed the book the thing that i liked the most about the book was not the references although those were also pandering to me to some extent um i liked the quest narrative mm. and that and you know that in itself is sort of a reference to all the many quest games and stuff um but I like the idea of finding secret keys and Easter eggs and that kind of stuff. So I was interested to watch the movie. But then it turned out that the movie, while it has that quest aspect in it, it's such a tiny, tiny piece. It's mostly references. And I feel like mm. the balance of quest to references is much more reference heavy in the movie, which is why I liked it a lot less in the book. I was confused probably a lot uh, but i was confused about who the audience was because everything yeah. you've just mm. said is accurate but also it's sort of a cw romance at the same time and so it's like uh -huh. if you're tailoring it to the young folks who are like the age of the main characters they won't get all of these references well they probably don't care about them so you're you're pandering but also it seemed to be trying to hit like that multi-generational thing. And I was just like, who's supposed to be watching this movie? I don't know. Yeah, this is this is one of, I was going to say this is my core complaint about the movie. It's not. I have so many. That's rocket surgery. <laughs> I got a list. How, how much time you got, folks? Uh, but I do think this is a key issue. And, and I wanted to ask all of you about what is this movie trying to say? Because it's set in the 20... 40s. 40s? 2045. Yep. 2045. Uh, it's about a guy who died and left the most important, like he left the internet to the winner of a video game. That's essentially what's happening here. He set up this quest. So he, who lived his his whole life and died in, in 2040, has apparently, he uh, became obsessed with the popular culture of the 1980s. And then for the rest of his life, only ever was interested in the popular culture of the 1980s. And as somebody who lived through the 80s, and I love the 80s, that's fun, and that's why the book was kind of fun. But as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, okay, is this movie a fantasy that in the future, people from the 80s need to not worry about it because in the, uh, the stuff that we love will always matter, even into the far future. Everybody's going to understand and study our, per it, you know, right, which is ridiculous. But that's the kind of fantasy world here is everybody cares about it. Or is it a uh, what I wrote down is horrifying zombie 80s where one man has created a horrendous dystopia of 1980s <laughs> that everyone else is bribed into caring about because of the money. Which is it? What what does this movie want from us? It's Jason, both. look at the upside. Facebook and Twitter seem to not exist. <laughs> to Ernest Klein's credit, it was a clever conceit that he didn't have to come up with any far future like media because everything that everyone cares about has already been made, and that's fine. In the book, I could suspend my disbelief about that. In the movie, like really, no one has a movie poster of something made in 2029 or whatever. No. It's ridiculous. No, no, no pop culture about the 80s. 
Jason, I think you're actually right on both counts because I do think my favorite part of the movie was uh, Halliday, the character who had created all of this. He was like the only yeah. person that seemed like a real person mm-hmm. <laughs> the entire movie, even though time. he's he's literally not a real person. Although maybe at the end he is, we don't know. Uh, but he he actually seemed like he genuinely cared and was so much smaller than the thing that he created and I think from his perspective he really did he you know I know some people who have gotten caught in a specific decade and have not moved on beyond that and that's totally fine and that was this guy and he did that and I don't think he meant it to be um, you know money grubbing trying to get people to care about the thing that he cared about. It just ended up sort of working out that way. And so I think you can have it both ways. I think it's both as disgusting and as uplifting as you suggested. That's a very Watsonian way to look at it. The Doyle in me says, oh, my God, Steven Spielberg, you are not the person to be doing 80s shtick like this. Uh, So my, my, my take on it is partly influenced by the fact that I, I saw this movie premiere at South by Southwest. There was a Q&A with Spielberg, a bunch of the cast, and Ernie Klein afterward. And I've also watched the extras on the DVD. The weird thing is the Steven Spielberg in the extras on the DVD disagrees with the Steven Spielberg who was at that Q&A at the premiere of the movie <laughs> as to why he made this movie. Um, at the Q&A of the movie, he said something that doesn't match uh, the execution of the movie that he made, which which is something along the lines of, it's great to have these distractions. It's great to be fixated on all these things, but that's all window dressing. And the most important thing to, is to get out in the real world and actually experience the world with other people. And there's very little of that in the movie. Uh, he also said in the Q&A that he he was attracted to the material because his wife, Kate Capshaw, was obsessed with the audiobook and just kept listening to it as she ran. And in the extras on the DVD, he just said that they sent him the script and sent him the book and he was... He was fully captivated by the the book. And I, I think Steven Spielberg has gotten so good at mythologizing at this point that that he had three different versions of why he was making this movie in the first place in his head while he was making it. Um, and I agree with Erica. James Halliday, played by Mark Rylance, is the most captivating thing in the movie. And I would be way more interested in a movie that used a lot more of him and a lot less of our main character <laughs> narrating the first Almost half hour of the movie. Oh, my God. So um, staying with Holiday and the 80s for a while, I, I agree. I think Mark Rylance's performance is is good. I think at the beginning it's flat, but then it gets, as we learn about him, we understand him a little bit better. I think his performance is, is challenging because Holiday um, makes Laszlo from Real Genius look like one of the Toastmasters. He is the most reserved <laughs> nerd you will ever see. And given his obsession with the 80s, um, one of the things that I thought about Halliday this time is that he was apparently the most boring person alive from 1990 until he died 50 years later because he just seems locked in place. And that that's my criticism with the conceit of the book that requires him to be this way is, uh, let's take like Bill Gates, okay? Like, you take somebody who in that is part of an era and you see him and you think about him in that era but now it's it's the year 2021 and bill gates is kind of an older gentleman and he's got you know he got divorced from his wife and he is he dating i don't know but like he had other things that happened in his life after the 80s and what the movie doesn't make me believe is that halliday retained control of the oasis the fundamental uh you know 
cyberspace of the 21st century and yet ended up being kind of completely aside from it, kind of increasingly obsessed with his own past. It just, it doesn't, that, that part doesn't fit for me. So while I, I think Rylance's performance is really interesting, like Halliday doesn't feel like a person. He feels like a, a plot contrivance that has to be locked in the 80s. If he died in the 80s, it would be different, right? But he died in 2040. And so why is is it only the 80s that come out in everything that goes on? I, I just, I find it unrealistic that any human being would live 50 years uh, seemingly locked in only obsession with things that happened in the 1980s. Uh, well, Jason, obviously you missed the very clear reference that James Halliday is from the universe of narrative convenience. So <laughs> he's also kind of a caricature of a stereotype. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's just is the, the ultimate nerd mm-hmm. that has, you know, it's just weird because I think he, yeah, there is some character development. I love the conceit of it, like with the quest narrative and how he set things up. But even that, we don't really see much of him within that. It's just, I don't know, it's just weird. A lot of people compared this to Willy Wonka in that this is the story of succession told through uh, like being a fan of a person yep. or loving the creation of a thing. And I think that makes sense in that the first time I saw Willy Wonka, read Willy Wonka, there was a sense of majesty and discovery and fun about it that I felt when reading the book. And the only time I felt that excitement and surprise during the movie was during the Shining sequence, which we'll get to later. But right. learning and discovering what was going to be happening was a lot more fun than I expected in the book. And then the movie, the quest narrative is almost not there. Let's take a break from Ready Player One to tell you about our sponsor. It's privacy.com. Now, you've all dealt with these things. I've dealt with these things. This idea that you've got to put your credit card in on a website and do they want you to save it? And are they going to, is there going to be a breach? And who are these people? And are they going to overcharge me? It's going to be hard to cancel. You know all the tricks. We've been doing this a while now. We, we get all the tricks. Privacy is a tool that makes it easy to manage your financial life online while keeping your most important information secure. It generates virtual credit card numbers. So privacy masks all of your bank information. You never have to worry about giving it out to people you don't know online. I signed up for privacy, linked it to my bank account, and immediately got to generate a credit card. It was a new credit card number. It could be linked. I can I can link it to specific companies only to charge from it. So it can't be stolen and used by other companies. I can set it based on how much can be charged on it. And also, if you don't like it, or if it does get revealed somewhere and misused, you just close it and go on to the next one. You you just have virtual credit cards. It's very easy to use and very clever. If you want to take control of your payments, decide who can charge your card, how much, how often. Uh, make sure you're never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to a more expensive service without your consent. All of that stuff is within privacy. Privacy is also a partner of one password. If you use one password, you can create, use, and save privacy cards all directly within the one password dashboard. All virtual cards created in one password have the same security benefits as all the other privacy cards, setting spending limits, create single use or merchant lock cards whenever you want. Go to privacy.com slash incomparable, sign up for an account. New customers automatically get $5 to spend on their first purchase go to privacy.com slash incomparable and sign up now thank you to privacy 
for supporting the incomparable. One of my other pet theories that has come up time and again during the summer of Spielberg is that Steven Spielberg loves amusement park rides and that I feel like the worst Spielberg, uh, worst of Spielberg is when he is trying to create a, a artificial ride atmosphere in his movie instead of a movie. And I, brilliant filmmaker, especially technically, but I think that on the creative side, he has this tendency to think that he's building a, an entertainment experience and not a movie. And what I was struck by with Ready Player One, which is a lot later than the movies that we've been watching up to now on the series, is now he's making a video game instead of an amusement park ride. And and it's mm-hmm. his vision of a video game, which he stopped playing in the 1970s. Yes, sure. Um, and, sure. and to him, video games match the quest narrative of Spielbergian cinema, where we see those similar elements of... The, the the first quest, this race, is literally the amusement park ride portion of, of the movie, though you could also say that there <laughs> are other parts of the movie that also fit uh-huh. that. And so he's got <laughs> multiple amusement park rides in. This is his inside a video vid- game. But yes, it, it, is. it isn't. It isn't his video game movie. It's his theme park movie because we go on multiple rides. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, all we did was go to a theme park where we don't really care that much about anybody other than the rather robotic mentor character (laughs) yeah in the uh in the book the first two quests are a little more cerebral they work for um they work for i guess to the extent that they do work they're you know they're things that you read about you see him puzzling things out the first quest in this movie is Mario Kart with the silliest resolution of uh, what how, how to really beat the game that you can't believe that our our hero would be the first person to figure it out. That would be figured <laughs> out on day one. I was I was going to mention this. this. This is one of the flaws, and I think this may be what Moises is getting at a little bit about Spielberg not actually understanding how video games work and what video game culture is work, and, and that works against this movie, is... Um, this is set up as a, as a quest, as a, as a big video game that people are playing. And yet, if you know anything about the gamer, uh, culture, like gamer culture is all about exploring all of the edges of the game. This, this is a movie that purports that these, these, uh, quests that have been set up are so hard that nobody, everybody's given up. And nobody's even tried to solve them except for the hardcore gunters, the egg hunters in ages. When the truth is it's actually the the puzzles that are in here are actually the kind of thing where a video game manufacturer releases it and says, oh, they're going to it's going to take them weeks to figure this out. And it's solved in an hour. That, that's the kind of thing like like video mm-hmm. gamers are going to do the what if I go to the edge of the map thing as in part one. Um, immediately. No, no, Jason, Jason, speedrunners have gone extinct and, 65 yeah, right. million minutes before this movie Fortunately, started. their blood it was bit, they were bitten by a, uh, a, a mosquito, and then the mosquito was in amber, and then they'll be cloned. No, that's Jurassic Gamer. That's a different movie uh, by Steven Spielberg. Uh, part th- I wanted to mention this also, since Brian, since you mentioned that this, the game stuff themse- itself is ludicrous. Uh, part three... I don't even know what to do with it because part three is we're going to play on an Atari 2600, which is like, that's the moment where I, I felt the most that this is ridiculous. Like the, the, that was the panderingest pandering kind of moment for me is we're going to play it on the Atari 2600. But let me tell you, the fact that nobody seems to know that Adventure was the game with the first Easter egg. A whole scholars, PhDs have been minted for, for years about the studying this great man and all of 80s culture. And yet, other than the, by the way, the other than the woman who is 
in the uh, the 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 research room for the bad guys and clearly knows everything that's going to happen in the movie, but nobody listens to her. We'll call her Cassandra, I guess. Cassandra. <laughs> um, like, how does nobody know that the first Easter egg was in Warren Robinett's adventure and that you go get the invisible thing and like you go and and you get to see his name? Like the movie per- says that like nobody knows this, and yet the moment that they see it, our characters go, "Oh, of course." It's like okay. Of course. Yes, of course. It's there's no mystery there at all. Like literally there's no mystery there if you know anything about gaming or the history of gaming at all. So I just one of my problems with this movie, I'll put it on the list, is it misunderstands gamers how gaming works or makes you basically thinks it's a lot more clever than it actually is about the puzzles that people are trying to solve, which makes the whole quest game part of it to me seem just like a waste of time because there it's not it's not clever it's just kind of obvious here's how i suspended my disbelief for those things i was watching wade go through the process of figuring out these puzzles and as soon as he does there's like a music cue that changes something happens in another room that changes that he's able to go to i like to imagine that halliday came up with a special technology that could read people's thoughts that only unlocks that feature Mm. when the person came up with it because of course someone would realize going backwards on that first track would lead to the shortcut everyone would realize that just by brute force and poking it around maybe i'm suspending my disbelief that nobody thought to drive backwards you have to go into the research and see the moment that inspired him at which point your car can then go backward that's how i'm choosing to interpret that. okay that doesn't work for the part three where nobody knows about the easter egg and adventure (laughs) correct and and then it it also means that um sorry cassandra knows but they're not listening to her his his friends that he told how this and that worked wouldn't have been able to get the first key and, and so on right. and so forth. So uh, unfortunately, Brian, uh, this movie, w- this movie with three different versions of logic uh, <laughs> disagrees with you. Oh, it's just it's so frustrating, right? Because th- th- on that part of it, I'm like, you know what? Game culture. OK, th- there is a movie that could be made here. I think if you don't have to tie yourself to the book and, you know, Ernest Klein is credited as one of the writers of the screenplay like clearly the book was the bible for this and the book's flaws come into this and the stuff that then they choose to drop from the book i think makes this aspect of the movie that much weaker but like the idea of a quest and a video game that everybody is trying to solve and it's got lots of clues and you have to understand the guy's riddles which means understanding the guy like I don't have a problem with that, but like the way it's done seems to just profoundly misunderstand how gamers think and how games work. <laughs> and so like why do we why do we even bother, I guess? I also found it both celebrating and super disdainful of mm-hmm. the whole world of gaming. So like while you're doing all this stuff to sort of celebrate, we've created this amazing world, all these people are trying to discover and making friends and doing all this stuff, but it's also like really preachy about you're spending too much time in the game and you should get out of the game mm-hmm. and don't be in the game and it's like you know the evil guy is just trying to monetize it and so it's it's just like you can't have it both ways i felt and it doesn't really get super preachy about that you shouldn't be in the game until like the very yeah. end where they decide to close it on tuesdays and thursdays and man if i had to work tuesdays and thursdays i would be really ticked <laughs> off and, and I, I tuesdays and thursdays in whose time zone <laughs> yes, true. yes i was true. i was super Columbus. uncomfortable about the idea that this movie is kind of trying to have it both ways in terms of yes we have this super dystopian future 
that like every time they are outside of the game world, I am feeling icky about just what the world around me is. So yeah, I can't blame people for wanting to escape into this this game world. But then when we're in the game world, it's like the whole feeling the whole mood of the movie shifts and it's supposed to be this fun exciting adventure Mm. romp um but then on the outside there are people literally dying because of like corporate awfulness and people are living in trailers stacked to the the sky and you have like little tiny nods to it like artemis is she's trying to save the world somehow i don't know and you know so she's trying to make things better for real people and it just she's on she's on a revenge mission she's morpheus Mm -hmm. this is the matrix except it's dumb because when you get that through the looking glass moment where she's like let me tell you what it really is out here in the real world and things are really bad and maybe you don't understand even though you were living in a a bunch of stacked trailers and like the movie doesn't know what to do with all of this because again yeah it's super dystopian and you're like oh well that's interesting no it's not and no, to not. jump all the way to the end, uh, there is there is nothing but chaos. There is no civilization. There's no um, there, there's no semblance of a social order until the police magically <laughs> the show, show up, up for the first time in the movie. <laughs> oh my god! There are loads of reasons that the cops should have showed not up. even for explosion. the explosion. I immediately think the cops have got to be working for the corporation, and they're just going to arrest everybody mm-hmm. and take their stuff, right? Well, but here's the thing, Jason, what you didn't realize is that you have to open the doors of that van exactly four times, Mm -hmm. I think. And that's when the cops show up. Yeah. Oh, is that an Easter egg? Yeah, probably so. (laughs) I mean, you just got to keep closing the doors of that postal van and reopening them and closing them and reopening them. But then the cops come. It's a lawless wasteland. Oh, the cops were were here the whole time. Sorry, guys. We were busy (laughs) not paying attention to the one thing everyone on Earth is looking at. And then by the end, the only thing that they've actually done to help fix the world, which is ostensibly the really important thing, mm-hmm. is that they've got people playing games for two days less. And they have like they don't address anything else about like the fact that, you know, sure, they, they took some of the corporation's uh, money away. But did they kill that corporation? Well, no, they didn't. They just closed all the loyalty centers. Uh, Erica, obviously, you didn't play the DLC for the movie uh, and read the second book. <laughs> so so maybe living through... Um, a decade of of discussion of big tech issues has has given us a better perspective on this. But I look at this and I think, okay, wait a second. Ben Mendelsohn, who's the bad guy in the suit, who is, by the way, does all sorts of things a CEO should not even attempt to do, but he is a real hands-on CEO, I guess. Um, They're the bad guys. And I, I keep thinking, but yeah, you're kind of a business built on the in-app purchase of the Oasis, which means that all they would need to do, and this is sort of mentioned in the movie, is adjust their terms and conditions, and they would put the IOI out of business, basically, because they're all the, the, the gatekeeper of all this. The walled garden, the whole world is a walled garden, and it's owned by the Oasis, which means it's owned by uh, whoever wins this contest. So at the end, yeah, at the end, what you really want to see is that at, at the very least... Artemis should say, uh, well, we're going to change this by changing how the financial system works. And we're going to open source the Oasis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we're going and we're going yeah. to make it so that people can can uh, build things in the real world and in the virtual world and make the world, the real world, a better place. And yeah, that does not happen. <laughs> no, Jason, we nope. will have philosopher kings or nothing. It's never clear what IOI does, and the only time that I felt really like pandered to about this movie and the structure was that, 
Ernest Klein et al. created the perfect evil corporation for angry gamer boys to hate mm. because of the corporateness or whatever. And I, that just pissed me off more than anything else in the movie that they set me up as a person to be angry at them. And I think one of the reasons Amazon in particular is getting so much flack these days is that Jeff Bezos is becoming closer and closer and closer to the goofy evil villain CEO that's here in Ready Player One. I, I mentioned that, that Facebook and Twitter seem to not exist, but they explicitly call out Twitch. So Twitch yeah. survived. True. And maybe Amazon died. I watched all of her Twitch streams. And do you streams. watch Twitch in the Oasis? I guess you do, probably, because oh, everybody's yeah. just always in the Oasis. I think IOI is like Zynga or something. I sorry, Reformville fans <laughs> out there. It's it's a it, it is a company that has just built built on top of this platform and is grinding in every way possible, grinding its users, taking their money from them and building a business on it, which is why I, I think again about how if you own the Oasis, you know, you are responsible for IOI existing because you allowed their, them to thrive and, and put people and indenture people essentially, and nobody is stopping you. So you, somebody should stop them, and probably the owner of the platform could stop them, but they don't stop them because they're getting 30%, I guess, right, of the in-app purchase. So and When they yeah. arrest Artemis in the real world because of like the debt accrued by her, her dad yeah. in IOI thing, I thought, wait, how in the world can this evil corporation arrest somebody with the force of a SWAT team? Oh, I guess debt, and nobody seems to have a problem with that. Yeah, yeah, that, so that piece of the world building was the thing that I went, hey, why? wait, why didn't we get more of that? Hey, uh-huh. hold on, wait, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Literally yes. 98% of everything else here is not that interesting, but why don't you follow up on that uh-huh. interesting thing, please? It is a thing that you think sometimes when you're watching a bad movie is that there's probably a better movie or this movie could be made better in some way. And that's absolutely one of them is that moment where his goggles come off and she shows him around and says, here is don't look at me. I'm beautiful, except for my birthmark. Uh, And then she says, the world is a dystopia, but we can rebel against it. And he's like, well, that's cool, but I just want to win this contest. And uh, the movie moves on and we don't. And it's too bad because there's a lot of richness there. If she is Morpheus, if she is like. We're rebels and we're going to we have a plan. And now if we can get the power that you get by winning, we can we can change the world for the better. But it's, you know, again, it doesn't want to engage with that. Jason, welcome to the rebellion. The rebellion is getting revenge, getting coupled up, (laughs) becoming billionaires and hanging out. Yep. Yeah. The solution is we're going to be good CEOs and there's going to be five (laughs) of us instead of one of us. CEOs for everybody. Like I was uh, expecting what Chip said is like that they're going to like open it up and make it open source and make it like give it to the people that would have been like uh, breaking down the system. But no, we're going to be good CEO- CEOs. And I no, totally no, because, trust you. Annette, Annette, because you gotta you gotta set up the sequel. That's the most yes. important tradition in human history. You gotta set up the sequel that is totally going to happen. It does show a lack of vision, right? That it's like, well, the best thing to do is that now when we run this business that controls the world, we'll be better at it than them. And it's mm-hmm. like, that that's your... Also, I have to laugh. The Ben Mendelsohn stuff, like that guy's a really great actor. <laughs> he's and so good. They they make him do so many stupid things in this movie. Um, and he's got his, he's got his like henchwoman... Um, who who is really bad at finale yeah yeah and and she's finale and she's really kind of bad at her job but he but not as bad as he is at his job i think that's their dynamic there of those two characters but like she's also not played by rooney mara like i thought no but but the business stuff that they make ben mendelson do where he's yelling at subordinates and he gets into his vr thing and he comes back out of his vr thing and he walks on the factory floor and the factory floor is just a bunch of people playing games in the in the oasis and, and like 
did I enjoy that? I did in a sort of good, bad kind of way because like he's just chewing scenery and, and insists on being involved. Like the scene at the end where he's like, I know, uh, first off I've sent finale to look for this van and she looked for days and hasn't found the van. But when I say it's really important, then they find the van immediately. That's great. But now <laughs> I'm going to get a gun and drive a car and go handle this myself. It's like, also, I, I'm going to be in the game and play the games, even though I'm a CEO and clearly don't know anything about video games. Like Again, very hands-on. It's so silly. It, it it feels written by people who don't understand anything about business. So they're like, business the business, Ben. Business it. And then he businesses it for a while, and then the movie continues. Uh. Yeah, and then at the end, when he has the gun and he has a perfect opportunity to shoot his enemy in the head, he stops because he sees some pretty gold egg lights in the face of this guy. He doesn't understand anything about the Easter egg. He doesn't care what the emotional impact is on the person he's looking at. I don't understand why his face softens and why he doesn't shoot. There's (laughs) nothing else in the movie. Erica, obviously you missed the part where he equipped the uh, augmented reality goggles to allow him to see through the the haze of narrative convenience uh, to the uh, what what's happening in the screen. None of the emotional none of the emotional beats in this movie really work for me at all. Mm -mm. Like there's that which is supposed to be like this moment where he comes around for no reason and it's not explained and also I can't Annette thank you for for comparing it to a CW romance because I cannot get that phrase out of my head now (laughs) because because yeah when he comes into the real world and he meets Artemis for the first time like they they if she would have like you said before spent some more time on the actual saving the real world and this is why it sucks and this is how we can make it better maybe the development of their relationship would have meant something but instead uh i'm gonna give moises a high five for also coming up with the phrase manic pixel dream girl because that's (laughs) totally what she is she she is just she's like this this you know super cool girl who can do everything except she can't really solve everything because she doesn't know enough about this other guy as this dude like it's layers upon layers of you know nerd culture that always leaves (laughs) even the cool girls out on the sidelines erica erica you know what the problem with her really is She's rendered in a way that other people just can't perceive the right way. <laughs> it, it's a it's a storyline, and this is one of the things that I find embarrassing about the book and the movie, is it's a storyline that seems to be written by a 14-year-old boy. And I was a 14-year-old boy. I get it. But like the the whole thing about like his greatest fear was kissing a girl I was like, okay. He lived to be 75 and his greatest fear of his whole life. Again, I get that it was in 1984. I get it. I get it. But for that to be the thing, and then for our hero, Wade, who we haven't talked about yet, we might never talk about him because he's that interesting. Yeah, why? But, uh, <laughs> but Wade... I think he's still narrating the first fifth of the movie. Wade has has this thing. And, and again, like there's something there. Artemis is is as interesting as she could possibly be, I think, given what the narrative wants to do with her. But in the end, all she's there is for Wade to like pine after her and, and, uh, and win her heart. And he, he moves very quickly to being super into her when he shouldn't. And that that's okay. Cause like, I could see him doing that, but like she, 
and ultimately she just is as as capable as she's portrayed she is also portrayed as the princess in the castle she's the thing to be won she's the you know in the end he just needs to kiss her because that was what Halliday failed to do and if he had just kissed a girl on his date none of this would have happened and the movie wouldn't exist come on Halliday it's a fantasy world where knowing pop culture references lands you your favorite Twitch stream crush. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> and I will, I will say that like I, I was attacked by a dog when I was in fifth grade, and I had three really pretty intense scars on my face for like those those horrible years through junior high and high school. So I can absolutely recognize and acknowledge how badly something like that, like having a, a birthmark like she has in her face, can screw up your self esteem. But I. It would have worked for me fine if it would have been like if the movie would have made me think that it was only her who really cared about that. But it, they it, it they just made it seem like such a big deal. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it it's so messed with her, Erica, that that makeup ceased to exist because she used <laughs> magical powers to make it disappear. I had a friend who had a birthmark very similar to the one on her face, mm-hmm. and she covered it with makeup and. The people that she didn't care if they saw it, uh, she didn't wear makeup around them. And like, that's a whole that's a whole actual human experience that um, somebody not locked into adolescent male um, perspectives on things uh, might have actually considered could have been possible for this character. Based on the way she did, like it was it was described and the intensity of that scene and the way that it was framed and shot and everything, I was expecting that she was, I don't know, in a wheelchair or, you know, or somehow like not even able to, I don't know, leave a bed. She's a brain in a jar. Something that was really different from the way she's portraying herself in the in the oasis whereas she's not different at all any more than he is she is not a full-on princess fiona in shrek to make a shrek reference which i did not expect today (laughs) here we are it's very similar i did kind of like at the end in the last act when she adds the scar back onto her character's face in the end small little moment show don't tell one of the first times the movie does that like yeah i I mean what i wrote down when that scene was going on was what what a tragedy to be beautiful with a slight blotch like and smart (laughs) and adventurous and beautiful but having a very slight imperfection because the movie's kind of saying like look it doesn't really matter um if you're if you're at all not exactly on model you're um hideous and we should look away from you which is really dumb but i thought i think it's also Mm. really interesting because this movie also has h in it right Mm -hmm. and that's an actual story about i'm not who you think i am i can be i can be somewhere Mm -hmm. different and that that is handled better than the no i'm hideous don't look at me i have a slight blotch the 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 more insidious thing to me about the the plotting of it is artemis is set up um that, that that is something that that actual human woman would have that big of a problem with and and it's very big of wade our cipher like yes. protagonist <laughs> it is so big of him it is so oh, big he's so generous him, Jason. it is so big he's so, he's so generous. generous and so good he is such a nice boy he deserves such a nice everything guy. Nice what a guy. nice guy yeah yeah he doesn't matter to him He's not just all about appearances. Also, you're super gorgeous, except for the blotch. Mm. So I'll get over it. I'm cool. I'm a nice guy. I was like, yeah, okay. 
All right. That's how he proves his worthiness to be a good CEO. Good mm. <laughs> CEO. Thank you. It's all, this is all just a really extended job. I mean, it sort of is an extended job interview for who's going to be the successor as the CEO of the internet is uh, you got to, you got to solve these problems and uh, prove that you're going to be a good CEO. So I, I, I mentioned H I want to mention Lena Waithe, um, who's great in lots of things and is good here. And we get this, you know, it's this big kind of robot dude, that is uh the that is Wade's best friend. Um, and then it turns out that it's Lena Wade, right? So it's like not who you were expecting. Um at the time, I mean, I don't know, I had read the book, so I knew what the twist was gonna be, but at the time I thought it was interesting that the way that H's voice is processed, I don't I, I think I I think it r- kind of ruins the twist because I don't think they did a very good job processing her voice to make it not clear what the twist was going to be now it's impossible for me to see it because i have seen lena waith and a bunch of other stuff and so i just know it's her pitched down a little bit so i i don't even know but i at least appreciate the idea that this is a kind of a uh a, a different way to do that same you don't know who your internet friends uh you know are in real life and it and it doesn't matter by the way that's 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 uh the point there is that they're still your friends even if you've never seen them before which is a a moment where i think the the movie is not doesn't understand how online friends work we're friends <laughs> even though we've never seen each other yeah how is that possible 20 years in the future you mean that could be done what <sighs> i was really yeah. hoping artemis was going to be working for the bad guys and she was one of that part of the team of researchers that's what i was like that's what i interpreted as her you don't know who you're dealing with is she was warning him that she was going to betray him and that would to me would have been way more interesting is there is there a missing subplot about the woman the young woman who's working for ioi yeah, who knows everything because exactly. theoretically she could either be I kept thinking this, the missing subplot is that she actually is working there, but is on their side and is helping them. But all she ever does in the movie is just say the truth and not be listened to by anyone around. And then they all applaud <laughs> when they lose, by the way. When their company loses, they all applaud. So I don't know. I don't know what's happening there, but I don't know why she's there. Because, yeah, I had that same thought of like, you know, is there a twist with Artemis or a twist with, you know, you think it's this person, but it's actually this. No. Mm-mm. No, I do kind of like the idea that uh, these people who are on the IOI research team were gunters that really needed a job. So they signed up for mm-hmm. a place where their skills would work, even though they're working for the bad guys. And at the end, when they were hoping that uh, someone other than IOI would get the Easter egg, that they're happy. I kind of dig that little incongruity. All right. but, yeah. Maybe they maybe that's why they're so bad at, Advent- at Atari 2600 is they all know that it's created by Warren Robinette. They all know it. They just don't want to say because they don't want to win. Do I like this movie? Do I secretly like this movie? Oh, no. <laughs> well, kind of like Jurassic World, I am much more interested in that movie the way that I'm interested in the Jake, Jake Johnson and, uh, uh, and, uh, and Lauren Lapkus storyline that we don't get to see in Jurassic World of the people at the desk that are way more interesting than everybody else in the movie. Uh, these people are more interesting than uh, most of our protagonists to me. I want more about them and why it is that they are working this job. Uh, than than I do um, the people with gamer tags that I keep forgetting. Yeah, once once again, a movie like this is the kind of movie where you sit and think of all the other better movies that could have been made. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want the movie about the real world. Tell me more about that because it actually matters. Sure, sure. And the book took the book spent a lot more time in the real world. Yeah, a yep. lot more time in the early going, and that was one of the uh, 
saving graces for that book. And yeah, it's just dispatched immediately. Here, here I'm going to say something positive about the movie. Everybody hold on. Uh, Steven Spielberg is a very good filmmaker. We've established that. Even in movies that are not that great, you can see his, his brilliance here. One of the things, he, in, in his late career, he's dabbled in animation in a few different ways and, and in combinations. And this is his... Uh, I guess this is kind of his Robert Zemeckis movie <laughs> where mm. and, and and my so my praise is going to be I like how this movie is a a movie that is set in the two worlds and that it cuts back between them a lot because the VR world is essentially an animated film and then you've got your real world where you're shooting actors on a soundstage or on a green screen. And I, every, the, both the times I've seen it, I appreciate how that, that this movie is made in these two different uh, frames of reference and then how they try to connect them. And there's that moment where Ben Mendelsohn, you know, inexplicably, honestly, but whatever, is faking. They think he's in the real world, but they've actually caught him in another simulation. And then he gets out of that. And, 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 and I like that the scene at the end, end where he meets with Halliday and it's basically all live action except it's uh it's Wade's it's Parzival so it's the CGI character in the real world it's not really real but it's photorealistic so they you know shot it mm-hmm. on a set like i really like that part about this movie technically that it it goes back and forth like the matrix right but the matrix is live action to live action this is a movie that is live action to computer animation cutting back and forth that's fun well and it's it's not it's not fully animated they did full performance capture on the whole thing in in terms of the the shooting schedule they started out doing everything on the performance capture stage where they had you know a a a wireframe delorean and all of those sequences they did all of them as performance capture uh the dance sequence they brought in like Cirque du Soleil uh dancers um to do that because they certainly weren't going to have Olivia Cook and and Ty Sheridan suddenly learn aerial ballet <laughs> um <laughs> but but th- like watch watching the extra features of this made me even more than I did even from just watching the movie appreciate the production design the costume design um all of the work that went into this um as as many narrative issues that I had with it it was still an amusing theme park adventure in some ways. There were things to keep my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I started looking for the seams in the animatronics, that's when I started getting bored because I was thinking about the story that the animatronics <laughs> were trying to tell. Speaking of the animatro- animatronics, um, how did you all feel about the fan service? Um, the, I, I think one? I saw a, I, I think I saw a Babylon Five Star Fury at, in one shot. Um, you know, little little things like that. Um, the presence of a of a Gundam. You know, I, I like seeing. I did cheer some for of that. Those references. I, I, I had <laughs> forgotten that there was an Exo Squad suit in in H's basement. Um, I mean, there's the really obvious stuff: the Iron Giant, Mechagodzilla. Mm-hmm. Got a got yeah. got got a got, right. got a bit of joy for me because uh, I I was not expecting it and it was perfect. Um, but the the gun the Gundam bit actually got me emotional um, because I I I I uh, it, like that I don't know it just something about it something about it simulated the triumphant moment in an anime that I'm actually enjoying um, for a moment during a movie that I was not enjoying. Someone tweeted way back when the movie came out that this movie 
more heavily advertised that the Iron Giant was in Ready Player One than the movie The Iron Giant was actually advertised. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, uh, you know, the book is chock full of way more pop 80s pop culture fan service references because they don't have to pay anywhere near the licensing fees. Uh, so I was watching this for the first time for, for, for this podcast, and I was like, okay, how many of these am I going to get? And most of them go by so fast that in the end, I didn't feel particularly served. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of just it, it's in the book. Right. Like the, in the book, you get to dwell on each little moment. And here there tends to be, with the exception of like building the Iron Giant or or uh, the battle at the end where you've got very distinct characters from properties battling. You just get a lot of like, hey, the Halo guys came by. <laughs> right. Or, ooh, it's Minecraft or what? Thank you, Microsoft. Get it? This outfit movie. is from Buckaroo Banzai, my favorite movie. Yeah. that Again, my favorite movie gets back to my uneasiness of people who were born in the 2030s declaring things from the 80s, their favorite movie oh it's all just so cruel it's so so uh so cruel to voice this upon them these like you like new things kids kids like new things it's okay you know uh, while i'm praising steven spielberg let me praise the um the action scenes especially i really enjoy the scene where they're driving the van and he's trying to move in vr and getting thrown around (laughs) and so he's staggering around in vr I thought that was I thought that was well done. I think it probably could have been more exciting and you know the movie at that point I just wanted to be over, but I I I like it because again, I think there's something to the whole and more something more clever than what is here, but the whole like you're in the real world and you're in the virtual world and that was a moment where they actually used it where the physics of the real world is being applied to the physics of the virtual world and making it not make sense, as opposed to something like when he takes the dive into the dancing pit and he's literally standing in a van, right, in the real world, mm-hmm. and he dives and he's like, whoa! And I'm thinking, what are you doing in the van at that point? Are, are you <laughs> on the ground? Forget about it. Are you, are you <laughs> leaning? What, 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 is, what are you doing? How does that work? Because later they're all like suspended in wires and stuff, but he doesn't have wires in that, in that you know, that van that he's living in or he's playing in that's true and then at the very end when everybody is on the doom planet and trying to help like they're just on the street literally running and nobody's getting hit by a car or running into a telephone pole so that's the part of the movie where the movie has lost the track of how the world works because it's literally (laughs) because that happens a couple times very late in the movie where there are people out on the street playing the game and it's like you can't no people are like they're like going to the grocery store and then they realize they need to put on their virtual reality i mean maybe it's augmented reality and they're seeing a different version of it all that but it doesn't really make sense that there are crowds out on the streets of columbus who are all fighting just on the sidewalk it doesn't make sense I did understand that, like, uh, or my understanding of that part was that because he puts out this call, Parzival puts out this call saying, you know, basically the the oasis, the thing is that's important to all right. of you, is in danger. I need everybody right, right now. now. So they have, like, okay. basically the goggles are like their cell phone at this point, and they pop them on to be able to help. And I had not thought about the possibility of, of like, AR where they could see where they're going at the same time. That van so is totally better. running over people if that's happening, mm-hmm. right? Because those, those right? people are in the street (laughs) the other thing that made me groan is when the layout of the people in the virtual world and the layout of the people of the real world are the same like someone would like fall on like five ioi guys and then it would cut to the same five people right next to each other there's no way that would work out like that in real life it's Mm -hmm. true 
It's true. Yep. Um, okay, let's talk about Wade. I guess we got to talk about Wade. Wade, Wade yeah. is our. Yeah, we're good. Do we have, Wade, do we have to? Wade is our main character. He's a he's a he's a guy who's really good at at, at video games. Man, he uh, has no distinguishable personality other than the things that he likes. He's not super smart, you know. Okay, I would like to say this about about the whole movie, but specifically Wade. It just it made me really uncomfortable going through the movie. How his his personal feelings about everything are totally based on Halliday's yes. personal feelings about everything. Yes. And then I started to feel icky about myself and like, you know, because he's able to rattle off all of these deep facts, you know, 11th favorite movie, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, oh my God, that's me with Doctor Who. I should be ashamed of myself. <laughs> but, but then I was like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Doctor Who is a property that has spanned like almost 60 years. There's a lot of different people involved in it. It's vast. This is one guy who is super, super like creepily impressed upon uh, by one other guy. I don't have a single person that I basically internet stalk that badly. So it's still, I was, I was comfortable feeling uncomfortable about his his life by the end of it. Erica, his personality is creeping and stalking, but it's okay. Because he's a nice guy. Because he's such a nice guy. Erica, did you feel that way about him in the book? I honestly don't remember, and I don't think I did, weirdly. But maybe I wasn't reading that close. I, I think the book, maybe either you go with it or it's a little bit more believable, this idea that is still problematic to me, but like the idea that People have grown up kind of obsessed with this guy. He's the most famous person in the world. And you read biographies of him and they and once you get to the point where he's sort of um he's died and he's 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 created this thing, if you get into it, you're gonna do all the research because that's one of the things you have to do is you have to learn everything there is to know about this guy. I'm assuming at some point, you know, that that um that he made like the fact that there's the 11th favorite horror movie, like somebody has either plumbed his, you know, message board posts or his Netflix queue or whatever. Right. And has come up with, I, I personally think that he has done this himself. Yes. That Halliday yeah. is a nerd of the kind who makes a top 20 list by genre of all of his favorite things. He seems to be that kind of guy so that you get the 11th, favorite horror movie and that everybody knows it but it is fundamentally in the book like i kind of get that more here it's it happens more quickly and it just feels sad like the, the, one of the things that really put me off is when we're in the research mode and we're plumbing his life for clues and there are things in his life like you're looking at this man's life and i just kept thinking this should be kind of sobering right like it's a dead man and we're trying to understand who he was and he had some at least one emotional issue in his life and yet it's only ever a pop culture joke and i found that just really troubling it's like vr what remains of edith finch in that i wish halliday had turned the research more into a game rather than just knowing this one sentence he said you know 50 years ago um yeah they don't do much with that yeah 
Mm-hmm. And I also read Halliday as possibly being neuroatypical in some way, because, sure. you know, like the 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 ultra focus on the 1980s and the the list making and all that that kind of stuff. And, yeah, sort of the idea of, of, of putting somebody like that at the center of this and then having him be forced, I mean, forced by himself, but after his death to be then the ultra uber focus of so many other people. It's just there were there were layers upon layers that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. While at the same time, I still say that Mark Rylance as Halliday was my favorite part of Mm. the movie because he just seemed like a genuinely sweet and nice guy. In watching the extras, one of my favorite bits was the very, very brief bit where they actually talk to Mark Rylance at all, who who exists on this like separate Daniel Day-Lewis sort of um, wavelength than a lot of modern actors who are like, oh, where's the behind-the-scenes documentary camera? Yes, I'd like to get in front of it. He he seemed very interested in getting his work done and going home. And <laughs> uh, and he, he like, they were doing all the performance capture stuff, and his, his demeanor seemed to be kind of like, this is really weird, and it makes me really uncomfortable, um, but this is the job, so I'm going to do the job. Okay, bye, everybody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, have have fun. Um, Storm in the castle. How much? Huh? How much? You're in, how much, huh? how much you're enjoying this? And uh, okay, kids. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm just I'm just a guy doing my job, and I'm gonna leave. Okay. Bye. Bye. A, a thing that is also unexplained, although I'll allow it, I guess, is Simon Pegg is the business partner, um, and their relationship, like. Early on, you get the sense that their relationship was bad, and yet he's kind of like the magic fairy in the movie who, who uh. provides them with the key clues, and he's actually been watching them all along, and when they solve it at the end, he's there to give them their big oversized novelty check for the whole of the internet. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's fine, except I feel like it's kind of unclear. Like, like, okay, was he part of it all along, and is... is uh, you know, is Halliday, you know, sort of alive in the internet or is it just the code in the Oasis or like, it's it just all not really clear. And maybe we can just go with it and be like, oh, isn't it nice that his, his partner was there and that this is, we, we've seen him in all the archival footage and now he's, you know, it's old Simon Pig and he's here to talk to them. However, I will say that one of my favorite Futurama episodes is the one where they are inside a video game and Fry is killed by the space invaders and they mourn for Fry. And then he just walks out and he says, no, it's okay. I had another guy. <laughs> I love that joke. It's one of my favorite jokes in all of TV. This movie does that not as a joke, unfortunately, but it does literally the same plot twist, which is, uh, Oh, I have another guy. I have the extra life coin given to me by the curator who is actually Simon Pegg in disguise or a, a, a bot that's run by Simon Pe- I don't know again why Simon Pegg is where he fits in but um, yeah, like is that his yeah. avatar and he is literally in it playing a hundred percent of the time that's why Simon Pegg looks so old because he's <laughs> always playing the game yeah I just because their relationship his and Halliday's is unclear to me at least like th- that he he married the girl of his dreams and then they like they weren't business partners anymore and yet he is Santa Claus at the end basically like I don't know <laughs> what I don't I don't know it's it's fine. Also, I find it very troubling that the fi- Wade's final test 
is is to see is if he is of good heart, which is um, you have to sign this contract, right? In the in the Oasis, you have to sign this contract. Which immediately I think to myself, well, if Ben Mendelsohn was here, he would fail and 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 die. It's like it's like a Last Crusade, right? Like if you choose poorly, you perish. Contract mm-hmm. of a carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So it wouldn't have mattered anyway because uh, I, I, I was never gonna gonna win it. But anyway, he gets his his virtue tested and he passes by not saying not signing the contract by saying you know it's more important than that. And he's like, yes, now and that now you will be the right CEO. Ding. Yes, you get a CEO gets his wings. But when they <laughs> when they're at the van at the end, signing pictures up. He says, "Here's a contract for you to sign." I'm like, no, yeah. don't. Oh, wait, do we sign this one? Wait a second. I'm it's confused. So confusing. Can we just Why? agree that the whole premise is like really naive that you would not like because I, I, as soon as you have the whole competition and the quest of like, oh, you're going to win and earn the CEO ship and ownership of Oasis. I'm like, well, of course, it's like there's tons of money. There's going to be like so many people dying like the whole this is like classic murder mystery there's a will there's a competition and people start killing each other off and it's just like oh this is so naive people are just gonna die all over and it's a really bad idea dude it's it's you know here we're doing charlie and the chocolate factory um and and revising the quests from the book in a way that makes them slightly more complex than the clues in the westing game well, and Wade's super not smart because he doesn't get it. And he just immediately starts spending all this money and buying the suit so they can yeah. track him and telling his real name. And it's just like, you oh. don't get that you're going to have a target on your back now. Like, that's very cute. You're the not secret very smart. is family. Oh, by the way, he does, um, in a moment that I think is truly meant to be shocking, and in the book it's definitely shocking, but, and I like, is that they blow up the stacks where his mm-hmm. uh, his aunt and her terrible boyfriend live. And it's like, oh, real world consequences. Spielberg really hates trailer park people, huh? Mm, I guess. Really, yeah, it's he not hates great. I guess, monster however, truck rallies, however, uh, trailer park people, I, I would, people in general. I would say it's a reference, but it's not from the 80s, so it's probably not a reference. But I did really like that when the stack is coming down at Wade, he runs lengthwise away from it instead of just running to the side because it's a very tall but not a very wide thing. And I thought, oh, that could be a Prometheus <laughs> reference, but it's not from the 80s, so it isn't. No, it, I mean, the, the, the people at ILM who pre that were probably the same people who pre that in Prometheus. In Prometheus. Went, you know what? No, I could reuse just, these boards. Just, just do it. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, what what else? Uh, we should talk about The Shining because uh, somebody brought it up earlier. Yes. And this is a thing that they actually changed because of a rights issue. They changed and brought in The Shining stuff where they they used filmed elements and built a CGI version of the Overlook Hotel and, uh, and used it as a sort of uh, again kubrick was a friend of spielberg's and uh and this this had the full participation of christian kubrick yeah. and jan harlan who were on set for this honestly wow. i think it's the best thing in the movie um Hell yeah it, it yeah. it's it's weird and strange there's the moment i i was waiting for it i'm like somebody's got to say i've never seen the shining and then h <laughs> says it and it's like oh well that's really great yeah i've never seen it and then the part that really made me laugh, the only time I laughed out loud in this entire movie is the part where we cut back and all the IOI people are in The Shining and they're all being destroyed <laughs> and murdered and, and and you see them out in their suits and they're all like turning red in the suit and putting their pulling their goggles off and being like, ah! 
<laughs> it made me laugh a lot. So the whole thing, it's lovingly recreated various different scenes in The Shining. Um, it's yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I I, I love the sacrilege of sacrilege um, that 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 it uh, that it represents. Where th- it, there are people who still are, are like, no, how dare they? And I'm like. Well, Kubrick changed a few things in, in his movie. If this is Spielberg's Zemeckis movie, and there is a shout out, to the Zemeckis Cube is a thing that they and and Alan Silvestri is doing the music, so he does the Back to the Future overture at that point, and it it winds time back and all of that. But if this is the uh, the Zemeckis Spielberg, then you know I feel like this is the this is the core of it because this is like the 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 you know you're living inside another movie like this is the this is also i mean i mentioned roger rabbit or or uh like forrest gump um you're you're using archival material or recreating it again i think there's a better movie <laughs> that takes place entirely inside of and subverting old movies you can't go back in time in an online game just saying <laughs> well, I mean, what happens? To, I was wondering, Brian, about that, by the way, the Zemeckis Cube. I assume that your character moves back in time and you're helpless to resist. You can you can wind back time in this specific sector of the MMO. <gasps> so, uh, but but like the, the, there's some as weird as it is, because they're re, they're just kind of walking around in the set of another movie. But there's a life to this scene, this set of scenes and a kind of fun feel to them that a lot of the other movie doesn't have. It's like that. Yeah. Anyway, if anybody else wants to talk about The Shining, uh, let's do it now. <laughs> I admit that um, as somebody who, like H, has never seen The Shining, it bounced right off of me. Hmm. You know, um, it, it was it was the part that worked for me the least well in terms uh, in terms of referencing, uh, you know, the, the the fan service of my reference 80s not years. acknowledged exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That was the that was the part that was the slowest for me because the references were just to, flo- floating right over my head. To me, to me, it was Spielberg getting to indulge in his own fan service, yeah. and that's mm. one of the reasons that it 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 elevates above the rest of the movie. It's like he he made the rest of the movie. Yeah, fine. He and cares about the, the Shining. Part, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. this this is the one that he was the most into. He's like, okay, so then Donkey Kong does what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and, oh, and all right okay so so but but does donkey kong have a gun okay donkey kong doesn't have a gun okay let's not have donkey kong with a gun all right guys when can we get to the shining part um mm-hmm. because i i've got some ideas mm-hmm. about that and i want to do this and i want to do this other thing and um oh oh at one point in the big final confrontation can we throw in chucky because i think it'd be hilarious to have chucky <laughs> like the, the 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 little elements like that and, and that, that was that was one of the things that i got out of the q a was I, I I got up to the mic and asked what was everybody's you know favorite toy that they took out of the toy box and the Japanese pop star uh, was like uh, Gundam and I was like yeah duh J- uh, what a shock and um, almost everybody else was like Chucky like everybody <laughs> everybody wow. involved in the movie thought it was hilarious that Steven had the idea to use Chucky um, and so like Chucky and The Shining to me represent Steven Spielberg letting letting his own fanboy out of the the protective box of carefully sculpted um, public uh, statements and all that kind of stuff and just let himself be a dork. Um, and I wish more of the movie had leaned into that than him 
shooting a thing that Zach Penn and Ernie Klein were left to, you know, have free reign over over structuring. Um, because the the shining sequence, the shining sequence to me is going on the haunted mansion in the middle of an otherwise mediocre trip to Disney World. It was also the questiest of the quests too, where that yes. was actually like more complicated. They had to figure things out. There was layers to it. So from a quest perspective, that was the best of the three sort of riddles. I agree. And and from a video game perspective, I like the moment where um where Artemis gets to the last part and it's a single player challenge. The rest of them get kicked out to the outside of the theater. I thought that was a really nice like game moment of like, well, you got to the the point. Now this is just you has to solve the rest of this. When I sat down to watch the movie for the first time, I was wondering, how are they going to do the war game scene? Because in the book, you have <laughs> to recite all the lines from war games and be Matthew Broderick. And that was the challenge is to get a high score in that game. And when they they turned it into The Shining and they went inside The Shining, I thought, this is incredible. I love it. I love that they added film grain back into uh, yes. this footage to make it look like the real footage. Uh, first of all, Wikipedia says that the script was revised, quote, to remove scenes that would be uninteresting in a visual format, such as reciting all of the lines from War Games. So I don't know if <laughs> I love that. They... I love that. Originally, yeah. what, what we did was originally we just inserted the screenplay to War Games inside the screenplay to Ready Player One, but it proved <laughs> to be too long. The other thing is that I wish this was a little bit more clever in that way because this does feel like a video game level that takes place inside of the Overlook Hotel, whereas there's no shining specific skills you need in order to survive it. I also love that they got around the naked lady in the bathtub by having her decompose into a skeleton as fast as possible so they can show her whole body. It was my favorite part because it was the first moment where I kind of like sat up and was like, whoa, this is different. This, like it felt, I mean, going from the the quote unquote real world to the Oasis was like, it was a shift, but it was a shift that didn't actually like make me gasp in any way. And suddenly we're in the Oasis and we go from whatever other Oasis world they're in to the Shining. And yes, like, like Brian said, adding in the film grain, like it was like they are in the Shining as I was like, oh my gosh, okay, this, this is interesting. And then, you know, for, for all of the complaints about how it's clear that the, this movie does not understand gamers, I agree with everybody on the other hand that steven spielberg definitely understands the shining so it just felt like suddenly suddenly i was this is weird to say i was really comfortable in the world of the shining because it felt like everything that was happening was of a piece and it made sense and it was just like suddenly i feel grounded in this terribly scary horror movie uh because it feels like everybody who's involved understands what they're working with and what they're doing um and so so i just really enjoyed that and i think probably maybe the biggest indictment of the film overall is the fact that my favorite experience watching it had nothing to do with this movie whatsoever it was because movie it was well it was a different movie but it was not even that it was because in the shining and i did not realize this they so they're using all of the 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 footage and everything but they're using the music as well and Uh, some of the music from the shining is a piece of apparently i didn't know this but it's apparently stock music uh that has been used multiple times because my uber doctor who nerd spouse sat up and was like wait a minute this is this is stock music and i was like what we had to literally stop the film we stopped ready player one so steven (laughs) could pull out his computer and pull up a scene from the 1960s story the web of fear and hear that exact same bit of stock music being played in a doctor who episode and be like look 
Everybody Stephen. else thinks that that music is the music from The Shining. <laughs> so you'd be like, what? why is The Shining music in the Web of Fear? Who did that? Yeah. But it, and God, I love the world, apparently. So yeah, so uh. it was just delightful fun to discover that Stanley Kubrick reused something that was in Doctor Who. So neither of those things have anything to do with Ready Player sure. One. The only connection is that Ready Player One pointed it out to us because we happened to be paying attention at that moment. And for those of you who are waiting for the Doctor Who reference, now you've got it. Yeah. Um, click it. I, like that box. I don't think it's, I mean, just to restate this in a different way, Steven Spielberg is a filmmaker and he loves movies. He he doesn't love video games. And so is it any mm-hmm. surprise that the part that he's most engaged with is the thing about movies? And again, would this be a better movie if instead of it be, the Oasis being kind of a very samey set of locations with occasional variation, it was things as different as going inside The Shining I think it would be a better movie. And in fact, I would more broadly say that I do think the Oasis feels too samey. It is sort of Wreck-It Ralph meets Tron. It is this bright neon sort of thing. And you can go into different rooms, but I never got the sense that the Oasis was a universe of different worlds with very different sensibilities. Most of the Oasis feels kind of just like an MMO. And I don't think I buy it. Um, that that it would be that way. And the Shining sequence really makes me think, well, why have we not seen more that's this different? And the answer, I mean, they're, they're, obviously the answer is because they put this in and it's this very special part. If Warner Brothers needed to save something for Space Jam 2. But like, I, imagine <laughs> if they had to go through, go through Rick's place in Casablanca to get a piece of information. And I know we're turning into Zelig or, 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 or something <laughs> like that, right? But like, that would be... I mean, Spielberg would love it, but it would also exactly. be it would also be like kind of delightful of like, oh, it would be something he would engage with. And even if you love video games, I think it would be better if the the director was engaging with things that he loved than things that he doesn't I mean, there's get. There's a lot of other 80s movies. 80s movies? Yeah, exactly. What is the point of this movie? Is it about video games or is it about 80s nostalgia? Yeah. 80s movies would have been a fertile, fertile oh my ground God. For, mm-hmm. for Spielberg to have played with there's in The Oasis. There's only dialogue about The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And it's like, why is that dialogue? Why are we not in Ferris's, you know, or sorry, Cameron's dad's car? Why are we not... Uh, you, in you would have the gotten breakfast raked over the coals for missing club, that one. right? Like, why are we not, <laughs> guys? I think we just fixed Ready Player One. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> I mean, and in the end, the climax. Of course, they're in the house that's going to be hit by the laser beam that's going to pop the popcorn at the end of Real Genius, and they got to yes, get out of there obviously. clearly. Well, the other thing about the book is that the reveal that they're inside war games can play along in the movie is a reveal to the characters that, oh my God, the Oasis has this technology. Whereas in the movie, the characters don't seem phased by the fact that they're in a perfect recreation of The Shining in a way that we as the audience are like, oh my God, Steven Spielberg recreated the Overlook Hotel. I wish there was more mystery to that. Well, it's a moment where the 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 players, the characters, don't have the uh, attachment that Holiday's supposed to have to it, or that Spielberg has to The Shining. In in, in the behind the scenes stuff, there's this one clip of um, presumably one of the brief bits of time that um, that Ernie was like directly interacting with Spielberg, and Spielberg had just arrived on set, and uh, he said, "Oh, that's that's why we made." Halliday's favorite arcade game, Turbo, because there's footage of you playing it at Amblin. And Spielberg's reaction is something something akin to, oh, really? Huh. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, a lot of nostalgia there. Uh, yeah, it's just <laughs> so much that he is so personally attached to in the world of video games that he just he he does not have that much of a relationship with it. But to change it too fundamentally, I think I mean the reason that Zach Penn originally turned down writing the screenplay was that he deemed it unfilmable as a movie because there was too much stuff to do, and then they had to keep paring stuff down, paring stuff down, and if it is something that is primarily going to be something to do with video games there's only so much that you could completely take video games out and and have it not um resemble its source material to the extent that you want and need it to i guess but i think to me it's it's that fundamental flaw with the source material is that the source material is like all 80s stuff, but mostly facts, trivia, and specifically video games. Um, and not really the lived experience and life and world of movies and so on, but our relationship with those pieces of media and us quoting them to each other, which which in the source material was elevated over the actual magic of that source material. The interactive was so much better than the passive entertainments of tv and movies i guess references like that's that's one of the things that's really disappointing about this movie is there's a lot of like oh hey buckaroo bonsai and i get it like they don't they don't want they don't want the audience to be confused but like it would be really interesting if people communicated and made winking knowing references to the 80s and 80s movies and 80s tv and 80s culture in general throughout also there's very little other than playing on the soundtrack there's no sort of like integral 80s music which is also super disappointing to me they just the soundtrack plays 80s songs but it's not part of of their their lived experience here and again if they've except in that one moment at the very end, mm-hmm. which is just so painfully unearned when he's holding the boom box up and playing fight for your right to party. Yeah, which is that mm-hmm. that is maybe the cringiest single thing in this whole uh whole movie, to be honest. But like so what I'm saying is it would have been better <laughs> if the characters really did give you the sense that they were well versed in this culture and that they would like quote it and stuff. But instead, it has become this zombie culture where it's like, I see you referencing an item. And it's like, there's no joy in that. There's no joy. The joy, and I think the book has more joy than the movie at this, is in the like, oh yeah, you're doing Max Headroom. I get it, right? Like, and and the that just doesn't happen in the movie. People aren't aren't saying like Ted Lasso a few weeks ago did as you wish and a million other uh, rom-com references. Right. And it was sort of like the joy of like reference, 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 reference. And, and this movie, the references are like, look, there is a toy or, or an object that you may remember from a movie. And it's like, and again, I think, the shining gets to the part where it's like actual kind of glee that somebody's having about a piece of that culture. And the video game stuff is perplexingly not 80s video game stuff. So for it to be video game focused and yet 80s focused, leading to the most ridiculous point, which is we are standing on a lava planet in virtual reality in front of a TV set playing an Atari 2600 game. Well, and again, so- <laughs> goes back to the source material. It, it, like, and, and, and this isn't a defense. It's a, well, yeah. they were adapting that source material and that source material was specifically inspired by that 
one specific Easter egg and adventure. Yep. That, at least, you know, to hear Ernie yeah. tell it, that is the origin story of the book Ready Player One, was building a story around that. Imagine if the climax of the movie Ready Player One was them in a live-action version of the dungeon and adventure, having to go and find the invisible dot and run into the room where the big letters mm. would be there. That would be that makes so interesting. That makes sense. <laughs> It's more interesting for a really totally nice guy to be standing in front of a TV. Mm-hmm. That's a lot more interesting. I think the connection to the source material is part, one of the fundamental parts, and a less uh, connected adaptation would have been better. But like, I, I, that's just oh well. Um, before we wrap up, if there's anything else that that you would like to mention that you haven't gotten in yet, now would be a good time. I have two items. One of which is I enjoy the fact that they have to when they finally do have an integral moment of music culture. It's from the '70s, and it's sta- <laughs> the dance to "Staying Alive," which does lead to the line, "Whoa, this is old school." Everything's old school when you're in the 2040s, but I guess she means it's not from the 80s. It's from the 70s. Still, as funny as that is, the 80s are right there, folks. Could you, why staying alive? It's not the 80s. It's you've missed, you had one job. Also, John Travolta, John Travolta never danced to that. No. He never danced to that song in in Saturday Night Fever. So no. you yeah. screwed up your 170s reference. Saturday Night Fever was a Paramount movie. It wasn't even a Warner Brothers movie. I Come mean, on. Come on. I just, again, the 80s, I love 80s music. And for the 80s music, this movie is a complete failure because they just. The, the only the uh, only Rush song associated with the movie was in the first trailer <laughs> and it wasn't in the actual And there's movie. a poster on the wall. That's um, it. Uh-huh. My, other, my other note that I wanted to, to mention is uh, T.J. Miller is Irock the Mercenary. <laughs> I enjoyed this performance because the way it's written is that he's like this fantasy figure who then is like, oh, my neck hurts. I got a thing. I got some sciatica. And he's dealing with the stupid CEO. And I I kind of enjoyed the evil mercenary who is a joke, uh, especially since poor Ben Mendelsohn has to play against him. So anyway, I'll do a shout out for that performance and the way that character is written. It's uh, hilariously undercutting. I dislike T.J. Miller intensely as a person, (laughs) interpersonally. Yeah, oh yeah, he's he's. I have interacted with him. He is not great uh, beyond what's been uh, publicly uh, uh, discussed about him. He's he's just a a garbage human being. Um, That said, uh, the character is a garbage human being, so he matches it Uh really well. And it's funny. I also wondered, like, how much of it was written, or did they just sort of let T.J. Miller go and then animate to that? Because it did, it just felt like T.J. Miller talking. And so I was like, you know, at least it's a character you're supposed to hate. Because I no, do they, hate they, him. they performance captured the whole thing. So yeah. it, it was all of them in these suits, and they were animating to what the wireframes moved to it's and everything. Like, like T.J. Irock is aware of what movie he's in. I guess is what I would say. And and it's a level of a layer of irony that most of this movie does not possess. So I wanted to call it out. I know TJ Miller, nobody, nobody's a big fan of TJ Miller, but I think that this character, and again, some of it's the performance. And so it probably is his performance. That's really driving it there. But I I just, I like that he's so unserious compared to everyone else in the movie, especially poor Ben Mendelsohn. So there, (laughs) Uh, what else do people want to bring up that we haven't talked about yet? This movie goes to great lengths to make VR look cool in the real world, and I wish things and people and movies would stop trying to make the act of playing VR look cool, because you look ridiculous. Yes. And the sooner we embrace that as a culture, I think the better we're going to be off. 
Agreed. There were bits of the world building that, again, like the bits of the world building that did not get focused on were some of the things that I found most interesting. Like I wanted to see one of these drone spitter USPS trucks spitting out mail delivering drones. Um, that would have been neat. Um, so, you know, something that in the summer of Spielberg we've seen with Minority Report and, and other movies, um, some some uh, some prescience about things that are happening, you know, drone deliveries of pizzas and, and that sort of thing. I don't think we're that far off from that. Yeah. Um, so th- there's some there's some things that feel trademark Spielberg near futurism uh, prediction type stuff that that I, that I thought was kind of neat. Um and and they get like they're they're these little edges of stuff like the X one bootsuit the feel of real and it yeah it came off like a like an ad out of Idiocracy uh, which I mean is a compliment um, <clears throat> it just it felt so over the top and so broy and so dumb that's like the last thing that his uh, his aunt's boyfriend says is thanks mm-hmm. for the suit Wade uh, yeah uh, right and then he's yeah, dead like <laughs> I, uh, that that that's the kind I was like give me more of that winking human. Mm-hmm. That that like obviously gets it, and I th- I feel like the biggest hesitation, and that's the biggest problem with the movie was there was this big hesitation of pissing off fans of anything, just anything, <laughs> um, and and, yeah. and, and that's a lot it, of fans. It, it was in the all interest of, of trying to please all of them, and as a result, only pleasing the most. Um, uh, uh, the most abrasive and terrible of them uh, who really, really love this movie like it's a lifestyle um, because they feel there like it validates. There are people who do? What? There really are. There really are people wow. who love this movie because to them it validates things. But at the same time, they wish that it had leaned more into the didactic nature of a bunch of the don't you get it? I'm, I'm more important than you because I'm a fan and I know I, I, I love this more than you. Therefore I'm better than you. And they've listened to this podcast and are about to send a sternly worded email. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. They, they brigade me every once in a while. I'm used to it. I'm just sad. I just want to say it again, that there was no Parzival Artemis romance where there was any conflict. Like the, the, there, the, the biggest mystery was like that moment where he sees her and he's like, oh, you've got a birthmark. That was like the most. We can't be together. Why? We just can't. Oh, so I that's okay. which is why I was expecting her to be on the other side. So we could have like a little dra- drama there, some tension, some growth, anything no. like that. No. Also, like there's a lot of really great 80s pop music that yeah. could be a great soundtrack yeah. to a little rom-com happening in the middle yeah. of this movie. Imagine nope. a whole uh, element where they have to go through a bunch of music videos. Right, like, <gasps> don't just name check take the on take me. on me video. Yeah. Run through the take on me videos. Video. Sure, <laughs> pop up videos. Well, we've solved this movie, everybody. No, okay, I, you uh, know, no the, the 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 key to romance is telling someone who you've creeped and stalked watching their playthrough <laughs> videos, just telling them that you love them on your first date and yes. declaring it as a fact. Done. Not 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 as a hey, uh, how do you feel about me? But I love you. That is a fact. Now we will proceed with that fact. Well, that's just the Wade's uh, charisma working there, Moises. You just don't understand it. Yeah. He's uh, dripping with it. My final, uh, my final shot is that the complete lack of emotional arcs for anybody in this movie. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the the drones blow up the stacks and kill Wade's 
end. And the most impact it has on him is that he walks away kind of dazed and makes a passing reference to some people have died in the final rally speech. Yeah. Uh, there is no emotional core to this movie, none whatsoever. The one character who gets an emotional arc is the awful CEO, the CEO. who for <laughs> some reason softens his face and decides not to shoot at the end. But we have no idea why that happened. Maybe he was having a stroke. I don't, I don't know. know. Take him away, cops who just showed up. Take him away. <laughs> I wanted to mention something about that scene, by the way, that I, I neglected earlier, which is they come out of the of the van. It's like, is it snowing? It doesn't. It Something is in the air and it looks like it's a ticker tape parade. It, it looks way too big to be snowflakes. And I've decided that it's actually swirling garbage. Or that, ash from the uh, the blown up or uh, ash from, stacks. Yeah, from the explosions or something. But it's coated like it's a festive thing in the air. And I thought, <laughs> that is not, it is not a festive thing in the air. I don't know what it is, but it's Ew. not that. Whatever it is, it's not that. But, you you know, again, you're not supposed to think about those things. But I laughed. It's like amid the garbage, we, we, we say goodbye to our heroes. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I don't know how I will react if they ever announce a sequel movie for this. It's in pre-production. What? Uh, lots of things are in pre-production, man. Lots cool. Of I'm sure they're working on a <laughs> on a screenplay based on the novel that was universally disliked. Um, the sequel universally disliked. Mm-hmm. It's called Ready Player Two, by the way. Did you? Could you? <laughs> it's no, no, no. It's called it's called uh, it's called Two colon Ready Player. <laughs> oh, oh, well, Steven uh, Spielberg will be on, right on it. Uh no two colon ready player one, yeah yeah there we go that's, that's perfect. It. Um all right let let uh, I'm gonna thank my panelists and go around one last time for their final judge final judgments about ready player one. Erica Ensign, thank you for coming on the podcast. You did the homework. You might as well get th- this podcasting is therapy. You got to get your feelings out. Thank you for uh-huh. being here. Final thoughts about Ready Player One? I just appreciate the catharsis because, yeah, after watching it, I'm still scarred by not being here for Super Mario Brothers. After having watched that film, I couldn't let it happen again. So thank you for the outlet. Mm, yes, you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, Annette Weirstra, final thoughts and thank you for being here. I am just so grateful for you introducing this movie to me, and I really <laughs> wish that I never knew it existed. Well, now you can speak with authority about Ready Player One. It's uh, true. If somebody comes up and somehow mentions it for some reason. <laughs> Moises Chuyon, final thoughts? Well, as a nice guy who knows a lot of references, um, I feel like I'm kind of the hero of this podcast. Um, I okay. All joking aside, I feel like maybe um, you know I, I've been a bit harsh, and to to inject something positive into this, um, you know, I, I think a great deal of credit uh, is deserved when a movie takes a multiverse full of references that touch on so many beloved things from my childhood in in, in loving and appreciative ways, and and that movie is Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Yes, <laughs> um, this movie. Um, I, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, there, there's the multiverse of versions of reasons why Spielberg said that he made it and wanted to make it and was passionate about making it and wanting people to disconnect and live life in the real world. And I was like, well, that's not the movie you made, bud. Um, I, sorry to tell you. Um, I, I hope that, uh, the, upsettingly fresh uh, Rotten Tomatoes rating this movie has means that, um, you know, uh, people did not take 
the worst things uh, from this in in a time when we are increasingly living our lives online more and more and more. Um, uh, yeah, if, if anything, the the rebellion should be against uh, validating uh, a, a lot of the things that I really dislike the most about this film. Um, onward to Hook. <laughs> uh brian hamilton thank you for being here any final thoughts i have a lot to consider about my life about the fact that i do not hate this movie as much as everyone else on the podcast i was pandered to for over two hours i enjoyed that a little bit and it's competently made and also it's really stupid in a whole bunch of different ways and i can't believe i've seen it twice now so (laughs) i don't know what to do with that (laughs) I <laughs> uh, me neither <laughs> on both counts <laughs> chip southern thank you any final words from you these days the movie is a bummer everyone is looking for a way to escape reference not acknowledged quote from the movie, what, movie? <laughs> that would this explain movie? why i it didn't acknowledge quotes? it not acknowledged <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah i don't i don't have anything more to say about this movie i don't think it's very good steven spielberg come on you could do better uh and he has done better but not 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 with this one. So, uh is this the end of the summer of Spielberg or is there one last mistake for us to make? I'll... Spielberg's got its hooks in you. Oh no. I well we'll see. We'll see. Rufy, oh no, but you didn't. Brian. Until then, all I have to say before we end up this episode of Rocket Surgery on the Incomparable is I guess I want to go to dog VR heaven. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>